Hello everyone, this is PJ Thumb. This week, the whole team is in Kuala Lumpur for work, including our first open meeting in KL. And so, we've not been able to record a new episode of Political Agenda. But rather than leave a gap in our schedule, we are airing a recent lecture I gave at Stanford University on 22nd October. In this talk, I cover Singapore's political development and evolution under the ruling People's Action Party, how this history has shaped and constrained the current government and politics in Singapore, and how this fits into contemporary Southeast Asia. I also take some questions from the Stanford students and staff. We hope you find this talk interesting. Our regular discussion will be back in two weeks' time. Enjoy! Thank you very much, Donald, uh, and uh, thank you to Donald and Lisa and the uh, Southeast Asia program here for inviting me. Um, it's a real honor to come here and speak. Can I just start by asking how many Singaporeans there are in the room? Oh, fantastic. Really good number. Okay, and how many of you, um, just so I know how to pitch my lecture, how many of you know nothing about Singapore? So like total beginners. Okay, good, good. Okay, so I can use a lot of shorthand. Um, so uh, when when I was talking with uh, Don about this uh, talk, I uh, gave him a list of four topics, and I said I could talk about any one of those for an hour. And he then proceeded to pick three of them and said, "Can you talk about all of them in an hour?" <laughs> so I'm going to try and cram a lot into uh, into an hour. Um, and um, I think by necessity, some of the things I'm going to talk about, might, I might gloss over or skip over important information. So if you have any questions, just feel free to interrupt, to ask, and um, we'll, you know, hopefully have lots of time for questions later. Yeah, but so what I'm going to uh, talk about today are the forces which shape the governance of Singapore, uh, especially the historical forces as they have evolved and how they affect the contours of politics and the political arena in Singapore, and also how they constrain the People's Action Party government, and how the People's Action Party government have responded to these forces. Right? So, the first and uh, maybe most important point that I want to make is that people tend to focus on 1965 as this really important turning point in our history, but actually our independence from Malaysia in 1965 was really one of a long series of political rearrangements, disruptions, transitions. In terms of constitutional, political, and legal change, actually 1965 is the least of all the rearrangements of Singapore's political life up to that point. The transfer of sovereignty from Kuala Lumpur to Singapore actually changed very little, and the constitution and the government just rolled over from the colonial period into the Malaysia period, into the independence period, largely unchanged. You know, there was a lot of just changing of, of names really, you know, you know, the state of Malaysia to the state of Singapore basically. So a comprehensive understanding of Singapore politics and governance actually has to start from the post-war reconstitution of the Singapore state in 1946, if not before. Right, but we're going to start in 1946. And that was when the British reoccupied Malaya. And by Malaya, I mean, of course, the historical and geographical entity of Malaya, which includes Singapore and stretches all the way to Perlis. Um, and by this time, the British had become reconciled to the inevitability of decolonization. And so they wanted to leave behind a stable post-colonial state that would also protect British interests, economic, political, strategic interests after independence. And to that end, the British partitioned Malaya, partition being 
the uh, solution for them that was invoked at the time, they partitioned India, Palestine, and of course Malaya. And they imposed the unitary state in the form of the Malayan Union on Malaya. But the problem is, if the Malayan Union included all the states of Malaya, you have a situation where you have a country which is 43% Malay, 43% Chinese, with Chinese in the slight majority. And you set aside the racial issues, right? Um, on an electoral basis, right, this would undermine the position of the pro-British Malay elite. And so, this, in order to resolve this, Singapore was excluded from the rest of the Malay Union to ensure their dominance, to ensure that British allies would continue to be in charge after independence. But this still was insufficient to placate the Malay elite because the Malay Union created uh, a unitary citizenship, uh, single citizenship, gave everyone equal rights. And the Malay elites and their protests led to the formation of UMNO. It led to the refashioning of the Malay Union into the Federation of Malay in 1948. So Singapore's emergence as a solitary entity then, right, was rooted in the politics of racial calculation and division. And this sets a precedent, a precedent for governance on the basis of racial division that both successor states continue to base their politics on. And overturning the trauma of partition and reunifying Singapore with the rest of Malaya would actually occupy Singapore's politicians and be the decisive issue that would lead to Singapore's independence from Britain. And while the structures created out of this partition will not persist, partition itself has had important and long-lasting repercussions on the two successor states. And it has, as I mentioned, established a precedent for political calculation. Rather than popular sovereignty at the heart of planning and design of political and constitutional arrangements. And I think we still see the repercussions of that today in both Singapore and you know, hopefully until recently, but definitely in the way Malaysian institutions, the constitution, you know, how they are created, right, on the basis of political calculation rather than how do we make these institutions as representative of the people as possible. So in Singapore, a new constitution was introduced in 1947, and then elections, limited, very limited elections, were supposed to be introduced in 48, but these were overtaken by the declaration of the Malayan emergency, the anti-communist Malayan emergency in 48. And the regulations imposed by the Malayan emergency, right, subordinated individual rights to the needs of the state. It crippled individual restraints on state power. It suspended laws that safeguarded individual liberty against state oppression. And these laws were very comprehensive. They empowered the government to detain without trial, to ban publications, to disperse any meeting, to impose curfews, to arrest anybody without warrant, etc., etc., etc. The important point is this. Despite the intent of the British that these restrictions would be temporary, Many of these re regulations were subsequently codified into the different statutes and continue to exist in Singapore today, mm. such as the Sedition Act, the Internal Security Act, the Criminal Law Temporary Provisions Act, and these colonial laws are still used to control Singaporeans today. They were designed, rightly or wrongly, right? we're, gonna, we're not going to talk about the emergency, but these laws were designed to address an emergency, an armed conflict, an armed insurrection. And they are still deployed today in a time of peace to control the population. And they establish more important precedents uh, for an authoritarian state. 
for the alienability of um, important principles of rule of law and civil rights, the interpretation of any opposition to the state and to the state's policy as subversion. And again, these assumptions still underpin Singapore and how Singapore is governed today. Prior to 1948, the British state actually hadn't intervened in Singapore, in Malaya, to you know, the degree represented by the emergency regulations. These were meant to be temporary, and they should have been formally ended when the emergency ended in 1960, but they have been maintained, inherited, and elaborated upon by the PAP government from 1959. But the legacy of the emergency isn't just in those laws and the assumptions that underpin them. The emergency was imposed for ostensibly security reasons, but actually they were also seen by the British as a glorious opportunity for social engineering, right? to impose a new economic, social and cultural order on the country. If you want to guarantee British interest in a post-colonial independent state, what's the best way to do it? If that state's going to be a democracy, you know, what's the best way to do it? By turning those citizens into British people themselves, right? By getting them to identify with the British, having British values, having a British outlook. And so to this end, the British actually introduced a whole raft of uh, reforms, educational reforms, which openly discriminated against non-English education and the values inherent in non-English education. At the same time, the British asserted control of public discourse by limiting legitimate public discourse to English and monopolizing the key definition, um, the definition of, of key terminologies, right? So this enabled them to unilaterally impose their definitions that favor British, the British colonial rule, that favored British policy. So terms like moderate, constructive, responsible, right? These were interpreted very much as being in favor of the British. You were moderate if you allied with the British, you were an extremist if you didn't. And to shape how people thought, the colonial government sought control over the propaga propagation of information and media and culture. And in particular, they sought to destroy other um, educational and political spheres, particularly the Chinese language political sphere, which was beyond their control. And to do this, the British asserted uh, an intellectual and moral superiority the sole moral authority on what constitutes Malayan identity and what constitutes the Malayan nation and therefore what constitutes subversion. And any alternative conception of Malayan identity was a deadly challenge to this authority and so had to be suppressed. Right? Fundamentally, if, you, if the world is, is to be organized as nation states, then the group which controls the definition of the nation within each state can decide who belongs and doesn't belong to that state, and thereby control the state. So what you do if you want to control the state, you declare your opponent as anti-national. You control the definition of national. And if you are a nation state, then by definition, those anti-national people are a deadly threat, an existential threat to your state, and therefore that legitimates the use of violence to suppress them. So following the de facto end of the emergency in Singapore in the early 1950s, we have a new constitution in 1955, which creates a partially elected legislative assembly and um, automatically registers all voters. And this new Rendell constitu constitution, as it was called, was introduced in 1955, but it's actually still in use today. 
right? Heavily, heavily modified, but never actually replaced. And we still operate a constitution today designed for the purpose of colonial control. The 1955 general election in which the constitution was deployed was um, Singapore's first and arguably only free and fair elections. And the British expected conservative pro-British parties to win, but voters overwhelmingly uh, elected radical pro-Labour left-wing parties. Now we'll come back to this in a second, right? But I want to talk about the political repercussions of this election. So Singapore's first chief minister, David Marshall, demanded British respect for the local population. He uh, demanded constitutional concessions. He sought independence at the first opportunity. And when Marshall failed to win independence in the 1956 constitutional talks in London, he resigned. He's the only Malayan leader to ever resign out of principle, which is kind of sad for us, I suppose. He was then succeeded by Lim Yew Hock, who was happy to collaborate with the British and with his erstwhile political opponent, Lee Kuan Yew. And Lim and Lee collaborated with the British to detain the leaders of the left without trial, to ban their organizations and to break up their movements in 1956 to 57. And so, by the time you reach 59, the next set of elections are due, and the British are eager to repeat, uh, to avoid a repeat of the 1955 elections in which their allies lose. And so they eventually reluctantly agreed to a suggestion by Lee Kuan Yew to simply impose a one-off rule that bans anyone who is detained for subversion, not convicted, just detained for subversion, from running in 1959. And again, as with other anti-democratic measures imposed by the British, this was it intended to be a one-off, right, temporary measure. But again, the practice of using security laws to use legal regulations to prevent opponents of the government from running have become standard in post-independent Singapore. So you see a broader pattern here, right? These practices established the practice of legitimizing oppression, legitimizing illiberalism by passing it to the form, to the, but not the substance of democracy, right? You pass laws which uh, enable you to oppress, then you say, hey, it's rule of law. And so you can legitimate authoritarianism while claiming the existence of rule of law. And this was used in a variety of ways to support the government, to remove their opponents, to facilitate a process of cultural and social transformation in Singapore, first by the British and then by the post-independence PAP. And what we also see is the creation of regulations and institutions through which the government channels political decisions. Right? And this then enables the government to argue that these decisions are not political decisions, they are administrative decisions. And from here we have the creation of the myth of the technocrat, which the Singapore government loves. It promotes the idea of politics as a set of rational public policy decisions, you know, based on logical deliberation by disinterested administrators and experts, rather than what it actually is, the result of political alliances, collective action, conflict between values-laden perspectives, right? And detention without trial is one prominent example of this because it's presented publicly as a decision by a professional and disinterested security agency, Special Branch, whose recommendations were made on so-called you know, objective security criteria and accepted by the politicians in the Internal Security Council, rather than, as declassified documents have made clear, 
the result of political pressure and deal-making and subjective opinion to serve political aims. Now, the election of the PAP in 1959, then, is supposed to actually change all of this because the PAP campaigns against all of this while it is in opposition. Right? And it explicitly campaigns against many of the strictures imposed by the colonial government. But the PAP's assumption of power soon exposes a fundamental divide within the party. The left of the party, the Lin Chin Siong left wing of the party, was against these strictures because they violated the rights and the sovereignty of Singaporeans. But the Lee Kuan Yew right wing was against the strictures because and only because they were imposed by a foreign government. If we oppress our own citizens, that's okay. Right? And I'm vastly oversimplifying here, right? but with re relating, relating to this issue, this was their sort of position. And this led to a split in the PAP, um, with the leadership of the left being expelled and the rest of the, the majority of the party following them out, and they formed a new party, the Barisan Socialists. And for the PAP rump, it looked like they were almost certainly going to be defeated in the 1963 elections. And so in seeking to retain power, the PAP faced a quandary, right? How do we win the 1963 elections against the Barisan Socialists? The only consistent and coherent nationalist force in Singapore, right? The largest popular nationalist movement Singapore has ever had was the largely Chinese-speaking left-wing working class, which was the domain of the Barisan. And in order to destroy this and defeat this, the PAP returned to British policies of racial and linguistic division, of control of political discourse, of social engineering, of authoritarianism and oppression. And like the British, they passed this through the form but not the substance of democracy, using their legislative dominance to legitimize regulatory control and oppression of the public sphere. They abandoned their movement to restore pre-emergency democratic normality to Singapore, and they instead returned to colonial policies seeking control of physical and intellectual space. Right? They sought to normalize this exceptionalism as Singaporean exceptionalism and continue colonial practices in new guises. And we see that very much in their rhetoric about Singapore's vulnerability, for example. Right? Emphasizing how dangerous life in Singapore would be without the government's oppression. And so, once again, this leads to the uh, subordination of individual rights to the needs of the, the state, and who is the state, the government, who is the government, PAP, the removal of institutional restraints on state power, the suspension of laws that safeguard individual liberty against state oppression, and of course, to justify all of this, they paint their opposition as anti-national, right? So not just a threat to the PAP, but a threat to the whole nation itself, and that legitimates violence to eliminate them. And specifically to win the 1963 elections, the PAP embarks on a campaign to achieve the most popular goal of reunification with the Federation of Malaya. To achieve the approval of both the electorate of Singapore and the leadership of the alliance in Kuala Lumpur, it negotiates a Malaya <coughs> agreement based on political calculation rather than popular sovereignty. Because this final agreement right, gives Singapore significant autonomy within Malaysia in exchange for significantly less representation in the Dewan Rakyat, the Malaysian parliament, and very strict limitations on the political rights of Singapore citizens in the rest of Malaysia. And apart from this, the rest of the constitution was carried over intact. 
and this was then endorsed by a pretty much a rigged national referendum in 1962, which presented Singaporeans with three alternatives, the government's alternative and two clearly worse alternatives with no option to say no. Right? So people voted for you know, the, the best choice on the ballot. But you see, again, right, with the partition, as with partition in 48, reunification now places political expediency in the short term over the long-term political rights of the citizens, right? It prioritizes the politics of now rather than thinking about how do we create a state in which, which would be long-lasting, in which the rights of the people are protected, in which people want to be part of it. And this criticism was actually made explicit by Lin Chin Xiong, who predicted that doing this would lead to the breakup of Malaysia because you cannot have a single state in which a significant chunk of people, and indeed the richest part of the, the state, are second-class citizens. They're going to want to leave. The whole thing is going to fall apart. And he turned out to be right, but before he could see uh, Malaysia or his predictions realized, his criticisms were silenced by the arrest and detention without trial of over 130 opposition politicians and trade unions and activists in Operation Cold Storm in February 1963. But as he predicted, the tensions inherent in the whole arrangement between Singapore and KL became too much to bear, right? And the two sets of politicians negotiated separation in secret and Singapore separated from Malaysia. And I want to emphasize that because people keep saying to me, Singapore got kicked out of Malaysia in 1965, which is not true. Right? Singapore could have stayed. The politicians were the ones who negotiated the separation in secret. Singaporeans wanted to stay. We voted overwhelmingly to be part of Malaysia. We didn't want to leave in two years. Anyway, so following separation then, right, over the next few decades, you see a continuation of this pattern. For example, um, rule changes sharply limited debate in parliament, turning it into a rubber stamp body. Policies for asserting control expand. They, at first, they continue to take very tried and tested forms. You have repression of the media, banning opposition rallies, deregistering societies, expelling students, declaring legitimate political activities to be illegal, liberal use of the Sedition Act. You know, and throughout the 1970s, you see arrests and lawsuits and detentions without trial, timed for elections. All of this in continuance with colonial policies from 48, from 59, 63, right? Opposition uh, politicians harassed, charged in court, smeared in the newspapers, detained without trial, in order to distract or eliminate them from participation in elections. The PAP asserts control of the intellectual space, the cultural space. It asserts uh, a monopoly on the content and definition of national values and identity which includes shutting down newspapers or any media which questions, you know, which publishes editorials, articles, books, which questions state policy, right? And they do this on the ground that these people are against the nation. They're anti-national. They're uh, hostile foreign interference or foreign intervention. That line is still used all the time. Intent on undermining the nation. But the PAP then also exceeds the colonial policies. They go beyond these. They elaborate on to go to places where the colonial state would never have dared to go. And they've discarded principles of accountability and democracy and human rights that even the colonial government had observed, even if only in the breach. So 
Some examples include control of physical space being expanded through the 1966 Punishment for Vandalism Act. Right? The goal of the Act, and I've written an article about this on a New Narrative if you're interested in learning more, or read Jyoti Raja's chapter, of course. Its goal is not to punish damage to property, but to punish public communication of information, right? especially information which the PAP disagrees with. It was originally put in place because the opposition, you know, you crush the opposition, you arrest them, you break up their meetings, you refuse them permits. Eventually, the opposition reached a point where they were protesting the Vietnam War and they were protesting Singapore's support for the US in the Vietnam War and the only way they could do it was sneak out at night and put up signs, right? Time-honored tradition dating back to the Romans, you know, put up graffiti. And the government was really upset at this, so they passed two, almost two weeks after um, a set of graffiti appeared protesting uh, American servicemen coming to Singapore uh, on break, on, on leave. Uh, the government passed the, the Punishment for Vandalism Act, which not just uh, criminalized communication of information, but dispensed harsh and humiliating punishment as a way of destroying support for the opposition. Right? So it completely um, departs from this idea that the punishment should be uh, proportionate to the crime. Likewise, 1974, the PAP introduces the Newspaper and Printing Presses Act, and this act innovated on colonial methods of control to enable state surveillance and control newspapers, most notably by forcing all the newspapers to be acquired uh, by uh, Singapore Press Holdings, a single company, and um, only there's two classes of shares, and um, the, the voting shares are controlled by the government, basically. And then the colonial aim of controlling or destroying vernacular education was achieved by the PAP in 1980 with the ending of vernacular education and the forced merger of Nanta, uh, the Nan Nanyang University uh, with the University of Singapore. Right? And as in the colonial period, this is justified on the grounds of national development, but also had the added benefit of breaking down a major bastion of opposition organization against the government. But all of this to what end, right? Why is the PAP asserting control? And we come back to uh, what I talked about uh, 1955 and the shock election result. See, the common understanding of the PAP's achievements is that these enabled reforms that then made Singapore rich, right? And this is the PAP's famous performance legitimacy. But it isn't quite accurate. The PAP has made great achievements, but they're not quite what people understand them to be. And to really understand this, we need to take a step back. So, by 1930, Singapore was the richest country in Asia. And the Japanese occupation largely interrupted this, but by 1950, it was largely back to where it had been in 1939. The most important commercial, transportation, communication center in the Far East. A major, major center of commerce, of technology, the biggest market in the world for natural rubber and tin, a specialized commodities futures market, a major world oil distribution center, right? major, major British uh, military base. It had a per capita income of $1,200 million a month, which was higher than any other country in Asia. The only place richer in Asia was metropolitan Tokyo, which is a city, not a country. It had more motor cars, more roads per capita than any other Asian country. It was the center of Southeast Asian art and literature, right? Uh, music, 
filmmaking, it exported these cultural products across the archipelago. Intellectual and print capitalism, if you wanted to make it big, right? Like Zubir Said, right? He came, he wanted, he was a Minangkaba, wanted to make it big. So he went to Singapore because that's where the money was, that's where the uh, bright lights were. It was the land of butter and kopi susu. Right, that's, that's, what he said. that's why you go to Singapore. Yeah. But you see, Singapore's colonial government was not accountable to its people. It was responsible to London and to the demands of international capital. And as a result, what you also see in Singapore is an incredibly wealthy global elite, Europeans, local merchants, right, Asian <coughs> merchants, um, but also incredible poverty. You have a colony which is extremely discriminatory and extremely exploitative. The vast majority of Singaporeans were really, really poor. So in 1957, for example, a quarter of the people in the country lived in poverty. Right? The poverty line for a family of four was about 100, it was $101 million per month, which actually is the same as the modal, the most common right, wage of, of uh, male workers, which was about $100 a month. So if you think about it, you know mean median mode, the mean income was $1,200, but the median income, the modal income and the poverty line were about $100. That's the kind of inequality you see in Singapore, right? And it's because of systemic racial discrimination, a severe lack of human rights, labor rights, no significant social welfare provisions, no minimum wage, little regulation of working hours, working conditions. You see people working for pennies an hour, 15 hours a day. Right? And if you don't like it, well, there's a population boom, we'll just fire you, we'll hire someone else. So the election of the Labour Front in 1955, and the, then the PAP in 1959, was driven by a labouring class which was angry over this discrimination, this inequality. Right? You can see the Europeans, you can see local merchants living extremely rich lives. Right? Remember, many of these huge public buildings that Singapore is, is famous for, Right, our City Hall, Raffles Hotel, built in the 1930s. Right? Motor cars fill the streets. So imagine in the 50s, all these buildings are there, and you know, people are living these incredibly luxurious lives in the Raffles Hotel, and meanwhile, you're living you know, 30, 40 people in a Chinatown, in one of those Chinatown townhouses, right? or you're sleeping under a bridge, or you're sleeping you know, in the street, and, that, and you're still working hard every day, right? It's that sort of discrimination is, is very, very, very clear, very visible to the vast majority of people. And so the PAP's great success was not making Singapore rich. Singapore was already rich. It was expanding Singapore's opportunities to make it more fair. And they did this by instituting really strong social welfare policies, which Singapore continues to be famous for today. And I think many of you will know which policies I mean. The CPF. The Housing Development Board, right? Public Socialized Housing. Healthcare, multilingual education. It is socialism, right? A strong social welfare state, which is the basis for Singapore's success and growth. And the, the Goking Sioux is actually in negotiations for basically cradle to grave, a cradle to grave welfare system when the PAP finally vanquished the Barisan and, and then the PAP broke off negotiations because it didn't feel any need to pander to, you know to meet the needs of workers anymore. So the PAP didn't make Singapore rich, it made Singapore more fair. And how do they do this? Well, this brings us back to the theme of control. If you want to quickly and thoroughly reform society, you need a lot of control. 
You need control of society to the deepest, deepest level, which then enables you to very speedily and efficiently implement very fundamental reforms which drastically change the nature of society in Singapore. And this rapid reform, and, and you know, this, this requires, for example, the, the reconfiguration of labor and economic policy to, to meet the challenges of industrialization, but that is going to cause a lot of pain to workers, so you need labor discipline, or you need to discipline labor. Slum clearance, forcible resettlement, the speedy building of housing, right? Land reform, the goal of, of you know, most socialized, uh, socialist states, requires kicking people off lands that they have, may have lived on for generations, right? Especially the, the Malays, who've been there a very, very long time. But you've got to get rid of them if you want to build HDB blocks. If you want to crush crime and, and solve a lot of these social issues very rapidly, you need to suspend due process. You need to pass laws very quickly to meet uh, outbreaks of, of uh, crime or outbreaks of you know whatever is happening in Singapore. You need to, to pass these laws very, very quickly. So you suspend a lot of the process of deliberation, of discussion, of uh, consultation, right, which marks more mature democracies. And as long as you are doing well, as long as you're solving problems, as long as you're making progress, then people will generally forgive you for this. And for most of the 60s and into the 70s, the PAP was doing this. But from the late 70s, the PAP runs out of ideas because all the low-hanging fruit is plucked, right? All the clear, obvious stuff is done. And as Singapore matures or society becomes richer, new challenges arise and the PAP is unable to address these. So from the late 70s, what we see is that they impose a series of policies that seem sensible, very logical, very rational, but they implement them, they have become used to implementing very quickly, right, without external review and oversight that you normally get from a vibrant democracy, right, that you would get from having vigorous dissent. And so many of these policies fail and had to be retracted. This included the Second Industrial Revolution, which uh, was the PAP's attempt in 1979 to move Singapore's economy from out of low-wage labor-intensive manufacturing to capital-intensive value-added manufacturing. It was a response very much to the oil shocks and the global economic problems of the 1970s. It recognized that Singapore can't always be a low-cost manufacturing. You know, we can't compete on low-cost labor, right? Especially not as we get richer. So it mandated wage increases. It provided incentives for high-tech industrial capital. To ensure this transformation um, over Singapore's economy, the PAP also intensified its control over labour, over media, over education, over the parliamentary process. It included the outcomes of the Go King Sui report uh, on uh, education in 1978, right, which introduced streaming, right, which I'm sure Singaporeans here are very familiar with, which is designed fundamentally. Go King Sui is an economist, He's an engineer, he, um, you know, that's how he's trained. And he wants to maximize the productivity of Singapore's population by focusing resources on the most talented, on the elite. And this undermines meritocracy and social mobility. But the most obvious failures of the second industrial revolution become apparent by 1985 because there's hardly any technological upgrading. There's a 40% decline in foreign direct investment. There's a fall in demand for manufactured products. From 84 to 85, GDP growth falls 10% and Singapore enters a big major recession. 
And the PAP is forced to recognize a, sing a simple truth, right? All this control enables change in Singapore, but you cannot unilaterally re-legislate your place in the global economy. Technical innovation and economic upgrading cannot be imposed by fiat. Nor can Singapore's position in the world simply be unilaterally altered. And this is compounded by the fact that the local capitalist class had very much shrunk under the PAP because they presented a source of political opposition, right? The Chinese merchants, especially being upset over reforms to vernacular education and the shuttering of Nanta, um, had been a source of major of a major source of opposition to the PAP. So what did they do? They returned to a low-cost model that relies heavily on foreign direct investment. They, if, you, if you think about the government's rhetoric, right, until the 19, end of 1970s, the PAP's line was, we are all in this together, we must suffer so that we can grow and become a rich country. Then they tried this, they failed, and they returned to a line that Singaporeans today will find very familiar, we are all in this together, we must suffer, or other countries will eat our lunch. Right? So pity Singapore's workers, right? For the 60 years they've been told, we must suffer, but for two very different reasons. And the PAP embraced the neoliberal consensus by becoming a place which prizes deregulation, stability, predictable, profitable returns on capital. And you see also the PAP's performance legitimacy metric change. Until the 80s, we talk about rising standards of living. We will have, go to account, remember, the Swiss standard of living, right? But then it's too changed, and in, from the late 80s and in the 90s, it talked about GDP growth. That is the metric now, which is a very, very different thing and has a far more tenuous relationship to living standards. So this economic failure then is one of a raft of failures stemming from hasty PAP policy changes in the 1970s. Right? It included major reforms to housing policy, to pension funds, to education, to social policy, right? Um, many of you who are Singaporean will remember the graduate mother scheme, right? Very eugenicist and racist policies in Singapore in the 1980s designed to optimize the efficiency of our population. And the public, of course, were really unhappy about this. And so in 1981, to a huge shock, they elected J.B. Jayaratnam in 1981 as Singapore's first opposition MP since 1968 and then Cham Si Tong in 1984. And the PAP faces a crisis of legitimacy in as much as losing two seats and still having, you know, 60-something percent of the vote is a crisis of legitimacy. And so what, how they respond is from the mid-80s, they introduce policies where control is the goal, right? Up to this point, control is the tool of policy, but control becomes the goal of policy from the 1980s. And most notably, they drastically changed the electoral system in order to maximize positive outcomes, let's put it that way. The provision of welfare is tied to electoral support for the government, right? Many of you growing up in Singapore remember HDB uh, upgrading, right? If you vote for the PAP, you get upgraded first. But if you live in, you know, Potong Pasir, well, we'll get around to you something. But also the creation of town councils from 1986 which are on a constituency by constituency basis and so by providing public services on a constituency basis the government can threaten to turn off 
basically turn off your taps if you vote for the opposition. They'll never go that far, of course, but as we have seen, as the residents of Aljunit know, having voted for the Workers' Party in the last two elections, right, their public services have suffered. Maybe not as much as people think they have suffered, right? The fear created by the lawsuits is probably more than how they have actually suffered, but there are very visible differences and changes. And many of you who were around in 2011 will remember the day after the election, all the public parks, the badminton hall, multi-purpose hall, all suddenly taken away, shattered, transferred to the PA. Right? That's the sort of revenge the government can take on your life. Then you have public housing regulated to break up blocks, racial blocks, but also class blocks. Right? You have group representation const uh, constituencies in which a slate of candidates is elected rather than a single candidate. That's from 1988. And it's ostensibly to ensure minority representation in parliament, but actually, if you look statistically, it reduces minority representation from around 35% in the 60s and 70s to around 25% since. And it also entrenches a very racialist idea of the nation, of our identity, and it perpetuates colonial race, uh, colonial race policies. And maybe most importantly, it raises the bar for struggling opposition parties who, instead of having to find one brave soul, now has to find four or five or six. So from 1988 also, you see changes in how electoral boundaries are drawn, right? They're no longer passed as a bill in parliament, but they're simply approved by the prime minister's office. And this enables gerrymandering and malapportionment. It also enables a lot of chaos because as I remember, as I remember I said, the town councils are constituency by constituency. And between elections, on average, in the last few elections, uh, a fifth of Singaporeans end up in a different constituency um, from the previous election. And this creates a period of chaos in which town councils, you know, um, each individual ward is, it has to be transferred to different town councils, right? A fifth of the country has to do that every election. Then you have the colonial practice of nominated MPs, which are reintroduced in 1990 which, you know, ostensibly to give greater diversity, but really give multiple votes to specific interest groups. And who appoints the nominated MPs? Well, a government-appointed panel. It also, it not just dilutes the opposition voice in parliament, it also encourages the idea of technocratic politics, right? Administrative, technical, and atomized into these very specific, specialized subjects and fields. And then, on top of that, in a partial return to the era of, um, into the colonial era of self-government, right, when the British governor retained reserve powers to veto the government, the elected presidency is introduced in 1991 as a safety net in the event of a PAP election loss. And the president is bestowed, bestowed with powers which give the president a final say over a lot of financial and personnel matters. But eligibility for the presidency is severely restricted, right, based on very strict requirements and screened by a presidential elections committee. Now, in recent years, this has backfired because first, the powers were curtailed when one president proved too independent, and then further curtailed when the, when the possibility arose that a non-PAP candidate might win. And then ultimately last year, I mean, let's be honest, it was openly rigged to ensure the pro-PAP candidate you know, would win in a walkover. And then on top of all of this, right, the PAP extends control to institutions which the British had left untouched and seen as vital, their independence as vital for the good functioning of the country. And this includes the law society and religious organizations, 
right? You see, um, because of criticism of gun policies in 1987, Operation Spectrum, you have a lot of Catholic Church and Law Society people arrested. Legislation is passed to curtail their independence, their ability to participate in politics. Uh, in response to foreign campaigns, right, growth foreign campaigns, the newspaper, the Printing Presses Act, is amended specifically to circumscribe the sale of foreign publications that are declared as having engaged in the domestic politics of Singapore. Right, so again, all these narratives which I talked about earlier, right, again, raised their head in the 1980s to, un to underpin these new policies. But in 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down, the Cold War ends, and it ushers in a period of economic expansion, and things stabilize, and the PAP's vote share correspondingly rises from 97 to 2001, and by the mid-1990s, the PAP feels secure enough to halt further attempts to control political processes and crush dissent. Right? Now, when we think about vote share, I mentioned vote share. People look at 2011 as a turning point, but they forget that in 2006, the PAP's vote also dropped nearly 9%. And in reality, the turning point right, comes earlier for the PAP. It's from the early 2000s that we have a period of economic stagnation, that period of economic stagnation starts. Real incomes fall, inequality rises. And so it's since the early 2000s, uh, discontent has risen. And at the same time, there is a, a lack of vision among the PAP's leadership about the future of Singapore. Whether you agree or disagree with Lee Kuan Yew, the man had a vision. He knew where we were going, right? But our current representatives don't seem to demonstrate that. And I think that was very clear in 2015 where the PAP put out a manifesto without a single promise about our future. We had a manifesto which was entirely about Lee Kuan Yew, SG50. I was really startled when uh, Zainal bin Sapari actually said at a rally, this manifesto contains no promises because it is easy to make promises. The PAP does not make empty promises. <laughs> to which, you know, I thought, does he know what a manifesto is supposed to be? And the problem is actually beyond the PAP because you see around us the neoliberal consensus, the economic consensus that has governed our world since the 90s is breaking down. And these are challenges which face every country. How do we tackle inequality created by unrestrained capitalism? Right? And this unrestrained capitalism, this inequality feeds massive unrest. Right? All of you are, I mean, San Francisco, I don't need to tell you about this. Right? And in Singapore, we see the spiraling cost of living. 10% of the country are millionaires, but uh, while an independent study by Yo Lam Kiong, the former chief economist of GIC, shows that as many as 33% of the country may live in functional poverty, where the cost of living is so high that um, even though they make what on paper seems like a lot of money, they can't service the cost of living. And on top of this, we have years of underinvestment in public services and infrastructure taking their toll. We have regular breakdowns on the MRT, overcrowding in hospitals. And so your anger and dissent are rising, right? And to manage this, the PAP further elaborates on the depoliticization of politics. You'll remember I mentioned right, the, colonial, the colonial government presented um, political decisions as uh, administrative ones. And likewise, over the past 50 years, the PAP has shifted political decisions into administrative bodies to be presented as logical and disinterested public policy decisions. And one tool they used was, of course, the Select Committee, right, which invites public feedback, creates a stage-managed process of public consultation, 
that then gives the subsequent legislation a veneer of legitimacy, although, as Don mentioned, the most recent example rather spectacularly backfired on them. But uh, from 2006 or so, there has been a new tactic, and that is the PAP drastically increasing the scope of criminal law. By criminalizing as wide a range of behavior as possible, this enables the PAP to then crack down on anyone very selectively. And then by placing the decision who to crack down upon, right, who to charge in, uh, on appointed, not elected officials, the PAP can push responsibility away from them. So in effect, what we've seen in the last decade is a basic strategy of making everything illegal, and then you can selectively prosecute the people that you want to target. And who makes the decision of who to prosecute? The Attorney General. Who is the Attorney General? The PM's former personal lawyer. Who is the Deputy Attorney General? A former PAP party member. So in recent years, the power of the government to arbitrarily act against its citizens has steadily expanded through legislation. You've got the Public Order Act of 2009, the Protection Against Harassment Act 2013, amendments to the Government uh, Proceedings Act, amendments to the Broadcasting Class License, uh, Notifications, Public Entertainment and Meetings Act 2014, Protection of Justice Administration Act 2016, amendments to the Film Act 2018, Public Order and Safety Special Powers Act 2018, etc. Et and all these laws have a common theme. They increase the arbitrary power held by the executive branch of the government or, and or they make it harder to challenge the decisions of the executive by uh, using well-established, and you know, this uses well-established methods, right? By limiting the ability of non-state actors to speak. Uh, this, it limits the ability to collaborate inside and outside Singapore. It increases the legal cost of challenges to government rulings while creating exemptions for the government. And so, you know, it enables all of these decisions to be presented as rational public policy decisions. Okay, so we're almost uh, out of time. So let me conclude, right, very quickly, with um, I think three, well, four points. The first is that the post-colonial PAP is in fundamental continuity with the British colonial government. We see things as a break, right? 65 as a break, 63 as a break. But if you, you know, as I've talked about it today, if you look at the, the policies and especially the values which underpin those policies, right? The assumptions behind those policies, they're the same, right? The, uh, you've got the colonial policies of uh, political, of control of political discourse, of social engineering, of authoritarianism and oppression, the embrace of colonial era policies, structures of racial and linguistic division, but you also have the colonial tactics of passing illiberal democracy, illiberal legislation through um, the, the form but not the substance of democratic consultation, rule by law instead of rule of law. You've got the continuance of colonial policies which oppress the individuals, you subordinate individual rights to the needs of the state, right? The suspend laws which safeguard individual liberty. And of course, they had the cheek in the 1990s to say these are Asian values. No, they're colonial values. They're authoritarian values, right? Asia is way too diverse to ever say Asian values. Then you have the painting of the opposition as anti-national, the control of what it means to be national, right? And therefore, anyone who disagrees with you is an existential threat to the people must be destroyed. You've got the return of colonial approaches to the economy through the undermining of social welfare policies, increased corporatization of public services, 
the neoliberal turn of the economy, and you've got a restoration of colonial institutions of governance, including nominated MPs, the governor's veto, and so on and so forth. So my point is the PAP is an evolution, right? Not a revolution from the colonial government. The second point I want to make is that the PAP is actually also very much shaped by external events. It's very much a product of the Cold War, or maybe a relic of the Cold War, depending on how you want to look at it, but also major forces of the 20th century. It comes out of World War II, and its economic policy is rooted very much in the post-war, you know, Fordist, Keynesian sort of consensus, right? Um, then it goes through the same anti-communist purges that you see around the world, especially in Southeast Asia. It goes through and responds to the oil shocks, the recessions of the 1970 by drastically changing its policies. It embraces the neoliberal expansion of the 1990s. And the commonality here is the leader, Lee Kuan Yew, who was great at riding this wave and really, really good at reading these shifts and staying at the forefront of these waves. But of course, the problems have really set in since he left office, right? It's like, for those of you who follow baseball, the Cleveland Cavaliers only lost one player last, this year, you know. But that team is very, very different. Um, the, the third point I want to make is that the PAP has actually been very responsive to public opinion, right? They like to say that we take long-term decisions, we don't think about day-to-day -day public opinion, we are not politicians, we are leaders, we are statesmen. But if you look at the history of Singapore and how they have responded to shifts in public opinion against them, right? At every major, every major time you see that the people of Singapore elect opposition politicians or the PAP's vote share falls, the PAP responds very strongly, both in a positive way, right? But also by trying to control and constrain the uh, accountability and the process of um, elections. And they, uh, constrain the popular opinion as much as possible by reducing accountability um, you know, through imposing more layers and a greater disconnect between the elected government and voters. And this itself is also in continuity with the colonial government. Right? So its response to declining vote share has been to tilt the playing field ever more in its favour. So Singapore's elections are still free in that no one is telling you how to vote in the booth. You can still put your, your tick wherever you want. But on the other hand, they are ridiculously unfair, right? And of course, accountability is also reduced by shifting decisions from elected politicians to unelected appointed officials who can be presented as technocrats, disinterested, you know, impartial decision makers. And so bringing all this together, then, these collectively, I argue, lead to a misalignment of incentive structures that explain the fundamental conflicts facing the PAP today. So, you remember I mentioned that Singapore's colonial government was not accountable to its people. It was accountable to London and to international capital. Right? If you think about these three factors I mentioned, that's where the PAP has headed towards. Its performance legitimacy rests on GDP. It rests on GDP growth and continued foreign direct investment. But its electoral, its moral legitimacy rests upon elections. So it's worked very hard to ensure those elections are as predictable as possible and to remove accountability. But this then has disconnected the PAP from the voting public, even as it grows more and more dependent on foreign capital. And this has resulted in vast inequality because in the policies it's passed to suit foreign capital, it's really squeezed the voting public. 
right? And it's only the lack of alternatives and the fear which keeps the voting public from voting the PAP out. And at the same time, the PAP is heavily relying on Lee Kuan Yew's legacy to win elections. But this makes it virtually impossible for them to break with that legacy to institute needed reforms to address the problems I mentioned earlier. Right? The, the PAP can, they have a huge room for mistakes. Right? They run a structural surplus in the budget. They have huge amounts of money. On a cash flow basis, they spend nothing on housing, education, or, or, um, or um, healthcare. Right? They can buy their way out problems, but to do that, they need to break with Lee Kuan Yew. And if they break with Lee Kuan Yew, they run the risk, they break with the, the major source of legitimacy that wins them elections. So they're caught in this double bind. And they are, I think they're aware of it and they don't know what to do. And as Malaysia has recently shown, right, as long as the vote remains fair, uh, free, sorry, as long as the vote remains free, anything can happen. Okay, thank you very much. Please ask lots of questions. Right. Um, let me play the role a little bit of gadfly, if I could, yeah, sure, of course, yeah. in a, hopefully in a constructive way. Perhaps a significant hazard of being a historian is determinism. In this case, to exaggerate the longevity of the imprint of specifically British colonialism, right. including British rules, British laws. Now, we have in Asia today the rise of China. Uh, maybe this is outside. You, know, you were focusing, and uh, I thought appropriately, on the internal political economy of, of Singapore. But how would you factor in the rise of China to the viability of the model that you have sketched out, which owes so much to a Western colonial origin? Right. Or maybe it's irrelevant. I don't know. I leave it up to you. <laughs> well, it might not surprise you're asking that. <laughs> um, you know, this is a very interesting question. I, I don't know if I have a good answer for it, right? Um, I think the what 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 someone has, has um, someone the the last person asked me about it. I actually that part of the problem is that there isn't a coherent policy about or an idea of what Singapore is or where we want to go. And it's only when you have that clear idea that then that intern, you know, that internal consensus and a strong vision that that helps shape your response to these external factors. Right? Singapore very, right now feels very much buffeted by a lot of external factors, including the rise of China. And because there is no internal consensus, there's no internal leadership there is no clear vision, that then leads to a lot of problems where you have the conflict internally spilling out into the public, right? And um, some of you may be familiar with the, the warring op-eds between Kishore and uh, his supporters on one end, uh, on side, and Bilahari and Tommy Cole, you know, disagreeing with how to approach China. But if you read between the lines of those op-eds, what I found frustrating was that they all had to mention Lee Kuan Yew and what Lee Kuan Yew would have done, right? Some of them very explicitly, I think Dylan Hari said, I was there when Lee Kuan Yew stared the, the Chinese minister in the eye and didn't back down. And, you know, how is that relevant? Lee Kuan Yew's dead. He left office in 1990. He's dead since 2015. The world has changed. But there is a, the contest internally is to be seen as the, the heir to Lee Kuan Yew. 
right? To say, I am the person who knows what Lee Kuan Yew would have done. But again, that's not, that's not relevant, right? We need someone who knows what to do today. What Lee Kuan Yew would have done is very much a, sh a shaped product of the Cold War, which was decades ago. You know, he retired, uh, I mean, he left office, and we have been so reliant on him. Uh, my understanding is he continued to manage relations with China a long time after leaving office. So, when you talk about the rise of China, right, I, I'm not in a position to comment about China per se, or Southeast Asia, but internally in Singapore, what is frustrating is that everything continues to be seen through this lens of the past, through this lens of Lee Kuan Yew, and there's no clear, coherent idea of where we're going, which would then, you know, give us uh, shape how we respond to China. Well, thank you. Any questions or comments? <coughs> thank you. I, I, uh, I thank you for the uh, very profound analysis of the uh, Singapore history. Um, what, I'm sorry, could you identify yourself? Thank you. Yes. Uh, my name is uh, Lin Yong Park. I'm a visiting scholar at uh, A Park. I'm from South Korea. Right. Um, <coughs> I think that I, I, I understand and agree that the, the um, current Singapore is not an ideal state and it may have a certain kind of issues, as you mentioned, whether it be a, a rule of law or rule by law. But if you consider the reality, mm -hmm. uh, what would have been different if Singapore, differently from, as you mentioned, not become an authoritarian but just applied a Western democracy? But how can they, I wonder, achieve the uh, state of something like today, which would be highly prosperous right. and highly, I guess, independent and become a strong presence? Uh, you know, um, they may, you know, apply uh, some type of a uh, affirmative action as they, you know, the. Neighbor countries like Malaysia did, like Bumiputra, they can apply those. But would it be uh, um, helpful in terms of their prosperity? I know that they are very much, as you, I agree with you, that yeah. they are responsible to the international capital, London, yeah. and so forth. But uh, Singapore, as I understand, is a small state, regionally as well as a natural resource. Mm -hmm. I think they are heavily dependent upon outside uh, money to come over to make an investment. So then, wouldn't it be um, inevitable for them to do so, yep. uh, to achieve such a kind of goal? I, I'm not talking about an ideal, but it's just reality. So I wonder, what would they have been uh, done if they didn't go in that route? Okay, thank you. Um, I get that question a lot, right? And, um, well, okay, first of all, I, I really dislike historical counterfactuals because it's impossible to say what could have happened or wouldn't happen, you know, and um, it's, uh, you know, I, it's, it's a lot of speculation, right? So with that caveat aside, um, I think, first of all, I don't, um, I'm not saying that the, the Singapore government did badly, right? No, not at all. They were very, very successful, particularly to the end of the 70s. Do I agree with every decision? No, of course not. And in particular, I don't agree with their, uh, you know, authoritarianism and the decision to detain a lot of people. They, they destroyed a lot of lives without, you know, by detaining them without trial, right? Chan Hai Po detained for 32 years, 
what, you know, why? I don't think it would have made a difference to the PAP if there was one person in parliament versus zero or even eight or 13. You know, it's a Westminster-style system where you only need a, a majority of one to have absolute power. Um, what, what bothers me is sort of, is, is kind of two things, I think. The first is, if the PAP is such a success, right, and people voted for the PAP, you know, throughout the 70s when the elections were still reasonably free and fair, although, of course, the PAP locked up a lot of opposition politicians before the, you know, uh, elections. Um, why, why do they need to resort to such authoritarianism if, as the PAP itself says, that they are such a success, right? So that's one thing. Um, why the fragility, why the fear, why the authoritarianism if it genuinely believes that Singaporeans are really well off? Um, second, I think the, the problem with our success today is we don't really understand what is going on. Um, not so much about success, about governance, because everything is a state secret. And it is very frustrating to try and write about Singapore, say, in the field of healthcare, right? Um, healthcare experts can't write about Singapore because everything is classified. So you can't analyze this, you know, they say the healthcare, the government says the healthcare system is fantastic, you can't analyze it because there's no information. I have colleagues who do studies of statistics released by the government, and then at the end of it, they say, you know, their conclusion is, okay, this policy is flawed or whatever, and the government then will respond, whoa, 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 where'd you get your information from? And my colleague will say, oh, your website. And then the ministry, the approved ministry will say, oh, hold on, hold on. Uh, then they'll take the statistics off the website <laughs> and put a new set on that is different from the original set. Or they'll introduce a second set which heavily changes the context of the first set and say, we apologize, our information was inaccurate or incomplete. <laughs> right? And then invalidate years of research by uh, people trying to understand Singapore. And this then leads to a broader problem of, you know, I think that there is a lot of uh, other ways Singapore can be moving forward now. Um, there isn't, as I mentioned, you know, there isn't a clear vision from the top, from our political leaders about where we're going, right? And it's, um, I think we need more uh, dissent, more democracy, more debate. Debate, I think, is the, is the most important word, which even the government recognizes because they keep saying we need more debate, we need more dissent, we need more naysayers, as Tommy Coe said, right? But then when someone like myself speaks up, boom, the hammer comes down, you know? And this is, this is the problem. I think even they know that there's a problem, but the fragility, the, the, their fear of, um, you know, losing, I mean, losing face, let alone losing power, this is a government which owns 85% of Singapore's land. It controls 100% of Singapore's pension funds, right? Uh, it, has, it houses 85% of Singapore's people. It has so much money, and yet it's afraid of one historian. And that, it concerns me, right? Set aside the threats of my life and everything. The fact that they are that fragile concerns me. So to come back to your question, right? Yes, I, I think, I, you know, I don't disagree that the, the government did very well and that a lot of tough decisions were made, right? And, um, you know, that the, the old guard of the PAP, you know, were, were very, very good. I, I like to say that the best government we ever had, really, was from the late 60s to the late 70s, because that government was really efficient and, in, you know, put through a lot of policies which were very 
you know, which laid the foundation for Singapore's success. It's um, it's today which concerns me. It's our future which concerns me. Thank you. Uh, I feel from outsiders, uh, Singapore is doing reasonably well uh, to boost innovation and continuously upgrade the efficiency mm -hmm. uh, in managing uh, so many issues. And do you feel uh, that's uh, the correct uh, perspective from outsiders, or you feel you do not agree? in terms of innovation or efficiency gains, continue trying to upgrade your governance. Mm -hmm. so do you agree or if so, mm -hmm. then what's the main factor to drive this kind of innovations or efficiency gains continuously for, for a long time? Any views on that? Thanks. Um, again, the, the, the big problem is the information we have on Singapore comes from the government comes from the government-controlled media. We don't have a free media, and we don't, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the statistics are all classified. So, you know, if you look at World Bank statistics, for example, they all come from the Singapore government. It's very hard to get any sort of independent verification of what the government is saying that they're doing. Um, what we do see is that government attempts to innovate and upgrade um, they, they don't seem to be working from the perspective of people inside the country, right? And they, the government has had a sort of committee after committee. Every parliament has had a committee to look at the, these, uh, you know, the transformation of our economy for the, the next 50 years. And they have produced virtually the same report every five years or so and there hasn't been any real action towards that. Um, and in the, in the meanwhile, the quality of life in Singapore is, is you know, falling, real incomes are falling, the uh, living costs are getting, are getting really high, right? And there's just a huge amount of frustration and anger in the country. So my perspective is not to say this is the right path or that is the right path. What I think is that what we need is just more debate Right? more discussion about the future. We need to have accountability and we need to have free and fair elections. And if Singaporeans, in a free and fair election, right, uh, listen to different parties and if the PAP says we will have an authoritarian government and we will take solid control and we will do these policies and some people will suffer but most people will do great and people vote for that, right? then okay, that's, that's fair and there's accountability, and they want a fair election on the basis of that manifesto being very clear about what they want to do. I will fight against that in a democratic way, in a peaceful way, you know, but, and I won't agree with, with that, you know, you need to abrogate human rights for personal prosperity, but ultimately, that's the choice of the voting public. So I am not wedded to specific outcomes about what happens. What I argue is that if, if you want, um, good policies, you need to listen and take into account a lot of very diverse views. And if you want good government, you must, there must be accountability for the government. At least, you know, every five years, maybe we can figure out better ways of doing it, but there must be accountability. And if you want knowledge, if you want understanding, there must be transparency. And we don't have any of that, and that worries me.
Sebastian. Uh, hi, I'm Sebastian from Bay Park. Um, so, uh, thanks for this presentation. It's really interesting. I was just wondering if you could talk, uh, you know, studying Malaysia, I'm a little bit interested in getting your perspective on how that changes the dynamics in Singapore, the Malaysian election. Um, and, you know, your description of the PAP makes it sound very brittle in a sense, organizationally. There's not a lot of room for change in direction, but do you think that the PAP, if you're going to predict 20 years down the line, is there flexibility? Are they going to be able to innovate their way out of this sort of situation they've, they've put themselves in, or do you think it's going to end up at some point in the far future ending in sort of a Malaysia-style outcome? Mm -hmm. Thanks, Sebastian. Um, that's another thing. You know, and all, all these talks, uh, first you get the counterfactual, then you ask to, be, to predict the future. And I'm a historian, I just explained the past. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's impossible, if there's one thing history teaches you, it's impossible to predict the future. Um, but I think, so first of all, the first part of your question, Malaysia definitely has had a, a, a big impact on Singapore because a lot of justification for what Singapore does is um, Malaysia, whether it's on the one hand authoritarianism and they say, oh, we can't get rid of the Eternal Security Act, Malaysia still has it, right? And we're closely aligned. You know, we can't get rid of these policies or that policy because Malaysia has it. And this is an excuse that's, that dates back to 1959 or even further beyond, you know, since this, the desire for reunification. And then on the other hand, there's a lot of otherization of Malaysia as the threat, right? We must do this, otherwise Malaysia will, you know, eat our lunch, will take our workers, will take our jobs, you know, they will import their racial strife into Singapore, you know, all sorts of crazy things blamed on Malaysia as this threat, right? As this alternative model, you know, in, in uh, the last election, I think it was... Uh, um, uh, the, the minister for health, I can't remember who was like, uh, oh, thank God my parents came to Singapore. You know, imagine if I was still in China, or imagine if they had gone to Malaysia. You know, oh, hey, nah, you know, I mean, you know, thank God that, that didn't happen to us. And of course, Malaysia was very upset by that uh, implication. That's, you know. Um, so, Malaysia changing so drastically then has a real concrete impact on our discourse because suddenly the government cannot use Malaysia the way it's used in the past. Um, that's the, you know, at this most superficial level. But then, because Malaysia is now leading the way, getting rid of, you know, or trying to get rid of the fake news law, talking about getting rid of uh, ISA and or the, the equivalent that since, you know, that, uh, that Najib passed, whatever it's called, Sosma, whatever. You know, getting rid of the death penalty, right? And suddenly the Singapore government finds it very hard to justify those policies because in Malaysia, with all the, the problems that the government says they have, can get rid of these policies, then, you know, why can't Singapore, right? So there is that. Um, I think the fake news uh, deliberate online falsehoods bill was very much delayed because of the election. The government said, uh, the Malaysian government said they would repeal that, that bill. And the Singapore government uh, just, you know, froze because it didn't know what to expect, right? And would Malaysia suddenly become this bastion of free speech or would it be business as usual? And so right now things are still in stasis. You, you sometimes you see, what, what you see in the Straits Times really is a hell of a lot of propaganda, sorry, pardon my language, of propaganda, which keeps emphasizing 
the the failures of the new Pakatan Harapan government, right? Trying to say that look, democracy is bad, you know. And they they run articles about how uh, Dr. Wan Aziza wanted a Malay for finance minister, you know. They run articles like screaming, oh look, you know, uh, the young Malay girls getting married. You know, and they de-emphasize all the positive outcomes of, of the election. So you can clearly see the Singapore government is very worried about what's going on in Malaysia and, and its impact on Singapore. Um, as for the future, um, I don't know if you've seen my talk from Johor Bahru a few months ago, where, where it was, uh, was can, Malaysia, can Singapore do a Malaysia? And my main point was it, it's a very different system. Uh, it's a single city rather than a big country. Malaysia is multi level in its uh, in a political structure. You have local, state, national or federal. Singapore is just one, there's one source of power, it's one family and their uh, allies, let's put it that way. Um, and so the, there is no clear opposition um, in Singapore, unlike in Malaysia. You know, we haven't reached a point where, I think one major turning point from Malaysia was Anwar and his, you know, bruised face, right, seeing, you know, and, and that was such a huge shock, and that was 20 years, it was 20 years until uh, the, this past election. And Singapore hasn't even reached a point where we have an opposition, um, you know, or, or any sort of clear alternative to the PAP. So it is, it is a long way off. Um, and I think the most important point I made was that the PAP is very much on performance legitimacy and it defines performance in a specific way and it has the money to buy itself out problems. If you look at 2011 where there was so much anger, uh, the PAP's response was to start throwing money at the problem. They put Taman in charge of things and also they created an $8 billion pioneer generation package. right? $8 billion, just straight out of the reserves, thrown at anyone above 65. I mean, my mom was so gleeful, suddenly all her healthcare costs were gone, pretty much. You know? it, it, was, it was quite amazing. And what government can simply take $8 billion of real money and throw it at its most, the most critical uh, you know, segment of voters? So it, it has that ability to buy its way out problems. So I think the, the PAP is going to look very, continue to be in control and very strong for a while yet. What is going to really destroy it is if a major, major economic crisis erupts and it has no clear, you know, there's no clear opposition, there's no, there's no uh, I mean, not clear opposition, the, it, the PAP, and the PAP botches its response, right, and then thereby destroys its own performance legitimacy, much like 2011, you know, in response to immigration, which was clearly an artifact of the PAP's policy and that drove a lot of public anger. If there's something worse that comes along. But, you know, so many other factors, right? Again, who do you vote for if you don't want to vote for the PAP? It's either SDP or Workers' Party, and they're both really small and struggling. You know, it's not like there's a Pakatan Harapan. Um, yeah, but uh, things, you know. It's, yeah, so I could go on, but I think there's other questions, but yeah. Yeah, I think we're running a little late, but there's yeah. time for another question, if there is any. Hi, I'm Penny. I'm, um, I'm a freshman in Stanford, and I'm a Singaporean. So um, thanks for your talk, and um, I agree with you that um, 
going forward, um, because of the changing landscapes and um, changing dynamics of society, we should encourage more dissent, more debate in society, because we need to, um, um, and this is what the society has been moving towards this, all these years, and you are doing a part in um, encouraging this debate. But my question is, um, one of the fundamentals of the concept of national sovereignty is non-interference from foreign actors and foreign states. And we see this issue playing out in uh, the American elections in 2016, when there was Russian interference in the elections, and this caused a great uproar in American society, and its reverberations are still being felt today with investigations going on. So um, I'd like to ask um, for you, do you feel that, um, for you, you have an organization that um, run, you're running an organization called The New Narrative, yes. if I'm correct, and um, you are um, the New Narrative Manifesto, one of it is to encourage and promote more democracy the democracy in South Africa. <coughs> yeah. And so, um, and by extension, Singapore. So would you explain, like, um, do you, in, there was actually reports that you accepted foreign funding for your organization. Uh, we, we put it on our website. It's not a report, you can go to our website. We put, okay. we accept the money from the Open Societies Foundation. We accept the grant, yes, from the Open Societies Foundation. Okay, so do you feel that it's correct to accept foreign funding if you um, are taking, actively taking part in a country's political activity and trying to influence its political direction? Yes, thank you. Um, so this comes back to one of the points I was making about the idea of national and anti-national, right? By defining uh, who is the nation and who is not the nation, uh, you then create this uh, boundary which you can police and you can create this idea of uh, them and us. But in a world which is extremely interconnected, um, the reality is that uh, those sort of boundaries are, are, as Benedict Anderson put it, imaginary, right? Um, and there is, a, a, um, there is no real distinction, I think, uh, in terms of human rights and democracy. As, as human beings, right, and as all countries have subscribed to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, we have the, the right to uh, democratic freedoms, which are also enshrined in our constitution. Um, now, when it comes to this idea of taking foreign funds to interfere in domestic politics, okay, there's, there's two things to it. The first thing is, it's really hypocritical for the government to say that when it takes huge amounts of foreign funding to govern the country and, you know, to, as, as a domestic political actor, um, and it uses those foreign fundings for a very, very wide range of purposes, right? So. If you're going to say no foreign funding, that should apply to all. But the fact is, the Singapore government takes massive amounts of money from foreign organizations um, to do all sorts of things which change, which you know, affect our society and culture. They run workshops, right, <coughs> conferences, um, education. The largest donor to NUS is Li Ka-shing, for example, right? Uh, there's debates about uh, you know our the new law center at is it SMU you know funded by uh, foreign donations including um, is it Norwegians and Americans, right? Um, the government uh, also and and um, GIC and Tomasic have uh, you know major um, foreign investments uh, coming in, right? And foreign foreign money invest is you know heavily invested in Singapore. And the idea that 
foreign businesses by investing money in Singapore don't interfere in our politics is, I mean, that's quite um, you know, a ludicrous one, right? By investing in our economy, foreign companies gain a lot of influence over our governments. And our government routinely says that uh, you know, domestic policy must be this way, otherwise foreigners won't come and invest their money in Singapore. I mean, isn't that a very hypocritical statement to then pair with we mustn't accept foreign money because it will, you know, in, in, in our intervention, you know, uh, foreign money to intervene in Singapore's politics, right? Corporations are intervening. They are lobbying the government to change policies. And if you look at our labor policy, if you look at our wages council, right? A majority of people on our national wages council are foreigners, right? Why is that? Right? Because they are, their companies are major investors in Singapore. And there are uh, foreign companies uh, have a, a big chunk of Singapore's economy, and so the government argues they need to be there, right? So foreigners are everywhere; they're a part of that. And of course, um, in the select committee itself, the government invited foreign organisations to testify in favour of the government, including organisations funded by the Open Societies Foundation, which was in favour of fake news legislation. See, so ultimately, this whole line about no foreign intervention is really about people on the ground who disagree with the government, who don't have the resources, and who you know turn to foreign organizations um, for help and for aid. Right? It's uh, you know if a hospital takes a donation from the Red Cross or something, you know, is that foreign intervention? You know, this this doesn't um, this taking getting a grant from a foreign organization is not an, a bad thing in and of itself because it, it, it depends on the person accepting the grant. You know, and what New Narrative has done and what we have done is to make our values and our agenda totally clear and to act as openly as possible so you can see and decide for yourself whether we are acting for you know, positive or negative reasons. Right? I think what is worse is hiding that you've got the money or hiding what you're trying to do or pretending that you're doing something else. Transparency lets people make up their own minds. And I think Singaporeans are, are very, you know, are, are smart enough to see the difference between um, you know, money brought in for uh, negative purposes and money brought in for positive purposes. If I may say, in, <coughs> in closing this session, the last question and your answer reinforces a point you made earlier about the importance of how you define the nation. Yeah. And uh, that question is perhaps uh, number one on the agenda of a lot of countries around the world, including Singapore. Yeah. Thank you very much for an illuminating presentation. I think we Thank all you. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.